this summer we're bringing you double koi gig let's get to the russo goal straight away like a back heel nutmeg like it was <laughs> for me it was one of the moments of the tournament subscribe to the otb koi gig pod on the otb sports app now the sunday papers on off the ball It's a very good afternoon to you and you're welcome back to Sunday Afternoons Off the Ball. Stephen Doyle here filling in for Joe Malloy who's away for the afternoon. I'm joined in studio by the 42.ie's Gavin Cooney and Kieran Cunningham from the Irish Daily Star. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you getting on? Hi, Steve. Now, just give a quick run through the front pages of today's sports sections. The Sunday Independent Sports on the front page. We've got... Uh, First blood to Nunes, and that of course is a reference to the brand new Liverpool striker Darwin Nunes, who um, had a real debut. I'm not. Do you do you count it as a debut? It's a Community Shield match. It's not really a debut, is it? It's. Uh, I think he'll definitely be counting it. Yeah, yeah. I was I was speaking to the lads earlier about Roy Keane. He was getting very worked up about how he was enjoying the match because it was so competitive yesterday. He seemed to really like that kind of the, the two teams taking it very seriously. I think Klopp summed it up before the game. He said, "It's an important game. If you win it, it doesn't really matter if you lose." Yeah. Yeah, I think they they seem to deliberately celebrate it a lot. Like it seemed to be a choice. Is it because I'm saying this, lads? I think it's because it's City. Yeah, Yeah, City in in a game that there is a medal and a trophy, even if it's a meaningless one. But I actually watched it, and I was trying to remember any other community or charity should have ever watched. I can't, I can't remember (laughs) anyone because I saw somebody put up a clip of a recent goal against Chelsea. Yeah. I think it might have been when Liverpool last won it, and he ran the length of the pitch and scored an amazing goal. I think. I just have no memory of seeing that. Like it's one of those games that passes you by, yeah, um, and it's instantly forgettable. But I think because of the Nunes thing of Manny leaving, of the hangover from the last week of the season, losing the two trophies in such uh, you know tough circumstances, I think Liverpool probably put a bit of store in it in just starting to. Like the, I think the biggest positive for them was how sharp Salah looked. Like Bunez yeah. was good and Carvalho looks a good signer, but Salah looks so razor sharp. Yeah. And there was one stage, the three of them, uh, Diaz had the ball on the left wing, Nunes was going down the middle and Salah on the right. And they were all bursting forward at pace and it was just electric. You thought, wow, like the speed they have now in the front three that yeah. are so d- d- direct and so potent looking. But it'll be the two of them again, I would think. I can't yeah. see... Anybody else breaking into it? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think Tottenham uh, could definitely give the top four a rattle. Well, not maybe not. Uh, yeah, I think they'll be third. Yeah, I think they'll be third. Yeah, yeah. We will be building up to the the new Premier League season with Keith Tracy and Vinnie Perth later on off the ball. So uh, as well on the Sunday Independent front page, just in the top there, you'll see the final reckoning: Dermot Crow, Katie Liston, Nadine Doherty, and more. Pages two to eight are all covering the uh, women's football final, the All-Ireland final between Kerry and Mead this afternoon. And of course, reference as well to uh, Bernard Jackman column. Um, it says, I had around 25 concussions in my last season, dot, 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 madness on page 19. And uh, we will be covering rugby and the concussion news that's been really all over the, the news this week. Now, moving on to the Sunday Times. In the uh, top left corner, we've got George's Day, Britain's Russell on Poland and Hungary. That a reference, of course, to the uh, Formula One driver, George Russell, who's uh, racing out in Hungary. Um, that race taking place later on this afternoon. Darwin Nunes getting a, a big splash there in the Sunday Times as well. Uh, Paddy Von Baer writing about that game at the King Power Stadium in the Community Shield. Liverpool winning 3-1 to one against uh, Manchester City. And uh, just at the bottom, this is a piece we'll be covering a lot today. Um... 
a really tragic piece. Uh, the the headline here is a family in mourning and a sport with questions to answer. David Walsh tells the tragic story of Scotland rugby player Siobhan Cadigan from pages 17 to 20. We'll be covering that more in depth later on in this slot. Um, then moving on to... I've actually got the Sunday Business Post here. It's not really a, a sports story as such. I just thought I'd pull it out here. Um, it says on the uh, Sunday Business Post, State asks GAA, IRFU and FAI to shelter refugees from Ukraine. It's an interesting story here from Michael Brennan, Aaron Rogan and Donald McNamee on the front of the Sunday Business Post. And uh, it's a story that they've revealed here. Basically, it's um, to do with the shortage of beds due to the student accommodation, which has to be taken back at the start of the new college season. Um, it says here, the government is holding discussions with the GAA, IRFU, FAI and other su- sporting bodies as part of its scramble to source emergency accommodation for Ukrainian refugees. The Business Post has learned, it goes on to say, the need to find new places for Ukrainian refugees is intensifying as around 5,000 beds and student accommodation are expected to be returned to colleges in the coming weeks as the new academic year begins. Um, It goes on then. The organisations responded positively to the request and any accommodation offers arising were the subject of direct engagement by the Department of Children with the sports organisation, the spokesman said. Uh, Croke Park is currently not being considered as a suitable location because Garth Brooks is playing a series of five concerts over two weeks in the middle of September at the venue. Um, I suppose it's uh, I don't know what to what can these governing bodies offer there I'm not too sure what to read into that story yeah well yeah like they, they don't um, unless you're talking about putting say bunk beds or camp beds in clubhouses or gymnasiums or something yeah, you know yeah. but uh, like I have been struck because I spent a lot of time uh, for family reasons in Donegal the last couple of years and from a quite remote part of southwest Donegal, and there's a, a, a significant amount of uh, Ukrainian refugees there. Like, uh, no, I've seen them, uh, names coming up of won athletics medals already. They're, you know, they're in the schools, they're, they're, some hostels and hotels have been given over to. So, they're, you know, it's not just like the refugees have been to Dublin or Limerick or Cork, you know, they're spread out and all yeah. over rural Ireland as well. And um, so, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just interesting how that will pan out. And, yeah, uh, absolutely uh, interesting. Like I think some some are looking to go back already. Like it's tough. Yeah, it's a tough adjustment, and uh, um, you know, even if, if the place where they're from, the specific city or town, if things have improved a bit, they want you know they want to go home. Like most people do want to go home because. A lot of them have no language skills at all, and it must be exceptionally difficult. Absolutely. I can't even imagine. Now, just moving on to the Irish Mail on Sunday. Um, their back page here, full splash on the women's All-Ireland Senior Football final between Meath and Kerry. It says, it's all on the line. Uh, Royals out to retain the All-Ireland title as the Kingdom chase a memorable double. Shane McGrath on the back page there, and there's some really interesting stuff in the Irish Mail on Sunday, as there is in the Sunday Independent Sports section. Um, moving on then to the Sunday World, they uh, go with the Shield of Dreams headline. Nunez comes off the bench to spark pool into life. Kevin Palmer there, and uh, he's uh, with the lead story on Liverpool against Manchester City. Uh, just a small mention there of a story which we will we'll go into a little bit later, and it's uh, Galway Shane Walsh bidding to join Dubs. Club Kilmacook Croaks, that one on page 58, so we'll speak more about that shortly. So that's the uh, Sunday World. Moving on to the Sunday Mirror Sport. 
O'Shea's out of Offaly running story there about Tomas O'Shea who's uh, pulled out of the <coughs> running to become the next Offaly senior football manager this one written by Pat Nolan the appointment of the the Kerry legend in succession to John Mon appeared certain with Offaly chairman Michael Dignan even declaring O'Shea's interest in the role while Mohan was still in place. However, a change to his work circumstances combined with the lengthy commute from his Cork base have caused O'Shea to withdraw. The five-time All-Ireland winner was added to Mon's management team ahead of the 2022 season and although... And though the campaign proved disappointing as Offaly suffered relegation to Division 3 and exited Leinster Championship and Tolton Cup with a whimper, O'Shea was well received by the players. I'm not sure if uh, that will come as a bit of a surprise, Kieran, or uh, Funnily enough, it doesn't because I was talking to Tomas uh, a few weeks ago for a piece in Jack O'Connor. I talked to a few people about Jack and it was around the time that Michael Dagnan had more or less said he had the job if he wanted it or... I don't even know if he said if he wanted it, we more or less indicated it. But Tomás was kind of humming and on. He said there was a principal's job coming up in a school, which I presume is a work circumstance. And he said that might change what's uh, the situation. So I have a feeling that might be what happened at the work, uh, mm-hmm. work to precedence there. And we know how much Offaly are putting into trying to get themselves back close to or to the top table so it's going to be interesting to see what happens next in that particular story mm. It's just so hard to do it Like I, I don't mm. pay too much attention to GA but it's so hard to do it it's A especially hard to do it in Leinster it's also hard to do it without any great consistency you know as regards maybe coaching but certainly you see like strength and conditioning it seems to be you need real consistency in that area of coaching and there's a piece and we might get to it later on the piece in the Sunday Times by Mick Foley pointing that out like going through Jack Connor's enormous backroom team yeah. and okay Jack came in and everything gets a sheen gets a new sheen but he kept a lot of people who had been around with uh, with Peter Keane including a stats guy who had worked in the Premier League and um, there was a strength and conditioning guy as well there that, that one of the lessons that they learned was the need to we can't be chopping and changing every year guys we need to keep the same guy need to keep the same guy and keep consistency there so I'm not I don't know how much change and how much of people will be at, at Offaly it's obviously harder to harder to keep people together for a long time and, and at lower rank counties when um, yeah. when there's just fewer awards on offer Absolutely um, just to finish then on the scan of the back pages we go to the Irish Sun Sport on Sunday and it says a uh, nice little headline there everybody's shirts on the Mead Kerry all-Ireland Senior Football Final and that's Gordon Manning talking about Mead star Emma Duggan realising that claiming back-to-back All-Ireland titles against Kerry today is no sure thing but the Dunboyne sharpshooter <coughs> has noticed a shirt thing among young Royals fans since they claimed a first senior crown last year. The All-Star attacker said you can see them coming up in their Mead women's jerseys. It used to be just Mead men's jerseys. That's another motivating factor for us to keep having that sort of impact and keep inspiring the young kids around us. What's the catchphrase again? Can't see, can't be. Um, certainly true there. Nil season then, the headline for the Liverpool-Manchester City Community Shield game. And as well, another little story here from Jack Rosser in Oslo. No kidding, King's back. Cristiano Ronaldo geared up for his big Manchester United return today by training with the kids. Want away, Ronaldo declared on Friday the King plays in the friendly against Rio Vallecano and then posted a picture of himself alongside four youngsters at Carrington yesterday. Not sure if you saw this photo, Gav, Kieran. Um, it's the four players, mm. young guys just uh, kneeling there and standing beside Ronaldo who uh, has got the shorts pulled up just so uh, we don't miss out on those uh, 
very impressive thigh muscles. I have to say, I was drawn to his enormous bulging <laughs> calves. I mean, I mean, I didn't think I would be, but I absolutely was. And obviously, you know, everything Ronaldo is is quite staged and curated. Like he couldn't have stood much more separate from that. <laughs> from his presumably, that's like a little five a side or four a side that they were playing on the on the training pitch. He couldn't have stood more separate to them if he tried. If he did, he'd, he'd have missed out on the um, frame of the photo, which obviously Absolutely. wouldn't be his style. Don't want to go in too much into uh, Ronaldo at this stage. I think people have heard enough of that over the week. Um, just generally, when you look across the newspapers this morning, um, the coverage of the women's final today, last weekend, superb coverage of Kerry and Galway in the build-up that was mm. across the weekend. Saturday newspapers, Sunday newspapers, in-depth. We got profiles in every single player, the managers, the coaching staff, some really good stuff. I know that as a media in general, we're still trying to improve the coverage of the women's game, whether it be Gaelic football, soccer, the whole shebang. Um, looking at your own website today, Gavin, the 42, had some good stuff there from Emma Duffy, um, analysing the final today. But just a general kind of overview, what are we feeling about the coverage today? Well, what really struck me is the Sunday Indo coverage because uh, it's clear that the sports editor, John Green, <coughs> excuse me, and his staff took a deliberate decision to treat it uh, at the same level as the men's final. Uh, well, uh, in the women's finals, like it's not just the senior final, across the intermediate, etc. Like the first seven pages, you know, the, fr- you know, the front page of the sports polite is just a write-off on the, the community shield. But the seven pages after that are all in the women's finals. You know, there's columnists, there's analysis, there's interviews, you know, there's the team lineups, there's assessment of you know, strengths and weaknesses. So they've gone all out and, you know, and there's far more across the papers, you know, there's more coverage than you would have got definitely a few years ago. Mm. But, you know, what struck me as well, part of this is access, you know, the women's game you know, court the media. They wanted, like, that's the one, like, the, the two and three of the Sunday Indo is an interview with um, the uh, the Meath fullback, uh, Mary Kate Lynch. Mm. And the w- one thing that jumped out at me is that she's a 20-year-old psychology student in Maynooth. And there's, uh, first of all, there's no chance you will get a one-on-one interview with any ma- male player in the Lola Ireland final. Like, it's a press night, press night done a couple of weeks before. Um, but the, uh, for the women's finals, they did a press conference during the week. And this is obviously separate to that. She's done uh, special p- photographs for it that uh, you know, were taken by Frank McGrath. Mm. And also, she's 20 years old. There's no way a male manager, if you said at any stage of the year you want to talk to a 20-year-old player, they would, they would think, you know, who is this guy? Like, <laughs> you, you know, he's asked for my mother's uh, hand in marriage or something. She's still <laughs> married to me, my father. Like, what's going on? Like, uh, it's just such... Because, you know, you have this really tedious debate about a split season in GA, etc. And, uh, you know, some people say that's just media whinge and stuff. Like, I, I, I don't really get that. Like, I still get paid no matter when the GA is, mm. is on. And so do other reporters. Like, some people seem to think you're, you're moaning because you won't get paid because the GA finals are a month back or something. Like, that's complete nonsense. But what I found is that new calendars, everything does feel so rushed. Like, there's no time or no space to do things. And I thought media-wise, it really suffered. Like, there, was, uh, there wasn't as much planning or thought going into pieces because people didn't have the time. Mm. Like, some of the weekends were incredibly busy. And you went from the hurling final to the week later, the football final. You used to have two weeks. So you'd have the week maybe to plan things and get things together. But you had to go straight in. You know, after the hurling final, you have to do the follow-ups to the hurling final. 
and then focus on the football fans. So it's all too rushed. Mm. And I don't, like one of the things, I've never got this, but like uh, uh, his name is um, Michael Norton of the president of the Women's Football Association, the LGFA. And he mentions, you know, he has problems with the, you know, the, the, the new calendar. And he mentions that in that piece in the Sunday Indo. But it's like, it's always painted as an either or. Yeah. Uh, you know, that you have to be for a club or for, car, for a car. Like to me, the, the, the fundamental issue uh, thing is uh, so, uh, hurling in Gaelic football and camogie in women's football. There's summer games and there's summer games at club level and inter-county level. <coughs> like it's crazy that hurling, which is a compl the, the ideal summer sport, is yeah. not played at the best time, at the elite level at the best time of year. And the nature, like people go on about elitism all the time. The nature sport is it's elite. Like you find your level. If you join a club, soccer club, GA club or whatever, you go to the first team or the second team or the third team, depending on how good you are. And people in the first team get treated better. Like the nature sport is, it's elite. Mm. Like the elite always get treated better. But the way to sort this out was always to run them concurrently, not have split seasons. Because that's the way it used to be. Mm. You know, they used to have club championship games uh, played during the summer, as well as county championship games. And the way to enforce it is, that you uh, players play every Sunday, play every weekend, either for the club or the county. So there's no training camps mm. with, with the county. So basically, counties can't train at weekends. Uh, if they've no county game at the weekend, you play for your club. Anybody that breaks that, they're told they're not allowed to enter the championship. So straight away, everybody complies. And I can't understand why they've got this situation, which have 32 separate fiefdoms in 32 counties. They all run their championship with their own merits. So even though Mayo and Tyrone were out of the championship fairly early, they're not starting the club championships till September, mm -hmm. which they always did. Whereas Wexford are at the quarterfinal stage of, the, uh, of their hurling championship. The Donegal leagues are finished, mm. you know, and they you know, finished mm. last week. Yeah. You know, so that, that they were all, the, the Donegal club players were playing all through the time when it was supposedly the inter-county season. And that's the same in a lot of counties. This thing makes no sense, and you just get bombarded with stupid arguments uh, that you just want, you've nothing to write about for the next week, few weeks, or you're just looking for a media point of view. But from any point of view, like uh, uh, Vincent Hogan did a piece on this in the Indo yesterday, like, uh, and he was talking to commercial experts, and they were saying when the commercial, GA's commercial contracts come up, People are going to say, what are we paying for when there's no media access? Everything has been screwed. Like you would have, say, uh, All-Ireland quarterfinals or, you know, provincial finals, you know, that would have been stretched over a few weekends. And they could have had a lot of commercial events around those in the build-up. And they're all squeezed or disappeared completely because of the tightened calendar. Mm. And what you'll have now is from, next to, from now till next February, you will have Kerry and Limerick players wheeled out for press gigs again and again and again. And people will be bored stupid of it. Mm. Like in many interviews with Kerry players have you heard over the last week? You've heard more than you heard in the last yeah. 10 years. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and that's, the, that's just, uh, it, it's completely counterproductive. But, you know, going back to the women's finals, that's why it's so refreshing that they have a completely different attitude. Mm. That they want people to read about the game and to grow the game. Yeah. Got, like there's an assumption and an arrogance now, the GA, that you know we can do whatever we want and we'll still get the crowds and everything yeah. will still be fine. It's but interesting because he it changed that, so much. That you piece know? you mentioned about Michael Nocton, he says at the end here, he says, so we move forward at a pace. And with our 50th anniversary in 2024 beginning to loom large on the horizon, perhaps we should also step back 
more and take a look at just how far we've come in a relatively short period of time. We can be so critical and hard on ourselves, but we've done so much in less than half a century and I'm firmly of the belief that the best is yet to come. And that's, I think, a very important piece when you look at the LGFA, Gavin, mm. because they've no doubt they've built up the support over the last five to six years. We've seen bigger attendances at finals. Now, whether that's going to filter down into the, the smaller games, I don't know if you could argue that, but it was interesting to see the Camogie semi-finals a couple of weeks ago, and there was a really terrible, yeah. poorly attended uh, couple of games yeah. there. I didn't. I think to it was be around honest, three thousand, like, and it, it didn't make for an interesting spectacle. I know there's people in the Camogie Social Association there trying to do really hard work to get the publicity, but the LGFA, it's something they've been really good at, is putting players out there getting their faces out there, getting good stories out there and it's helped the attendances of the game and the interest in the game. And a really good broadcast partner with TG Carr. Like that's worked really well as well. Um, and they've let the, they've let, they've, they've, as you say and as Kieran says, they've put people out in front and centre. They've get get to know people. Like I now, I read this piece by Dermot Crow. I now know uh, who this girl is, Mary-Kate Lynch and I'm kind of interested in her story and how they go. Now they are helped by the fact that, you know, we're, 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 the empire has fallen with regards to Dublin as well. But the same thing has happened in the men's game. And like me, they're amazing champions for, for the ladies' game or the women's game in, in, in general. Just to briefly go back to, to what Kieran was saying, like I don't know if the split season is a success really. Maybe they've overcorrected it. It does kind of feel like it's a little bit rushed at times. Mm-hmm. But like my... Like I can, I can, you know, I'm Irish, so you have to be able to kind of survive some level of irony to get through life. I can't take the people in men's GA complaining about a loss of spotlight when they seem to have absolutely no interest in promoting their own game. Like, like there's yeah. no, there's no, me- they've no real media access to talk about. It disappears from television in midweek and yeah. just because it's our national game and so rooted in our community and like at a grassroots level, it's such an amazing, it really is kind of an amazing association and organisation. There's just a real assumption like here and says, it's just like, you know, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're the status quo and things won't change, but, you know, status quo in Ireland have changed over the yeah, last century. Yeah, and the, 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 other, the other point that people forget is they lucked out this year because of the change in the World Cup. Mm. Like ordinarily, yeah. the World Cup would have been on, uh, you know, for, uh, across six weeks of a condensed championship. You know, but because it was moved to Qatar, they didn't have to deal with that. And it would be very interesting to see what happens when they do go up against a major soccer tournament and you have, particularly with hurling, because all the major hurling games, there's a huge amount of them played very early and then there's only a handful of counties left um, for say mid-June on which for I, I keep going back for summer sport doesn't make any sense like mm. yeah I, you know I, I think people are you know weary of this argument but I, I think there's a big problem in that you're shouted down as being anti-club and there's all about participation there's all about the volunteers but you can have both like the summer should be able to cope with both club and inter-county games mm. Yeah, we will come back to the women's final and we do have to go for news. Uh, We'll come back to that uh, very good interview by Mary-Kate Lynch. Uh, Some interesting little pieces on her there and some of the other women's final build-up. Of course, there is the Euro 2022 build-up we'll have a look at as well and lots of other interesting stuff in this morning's sports pages. But for now, um, we'll just go for news and we'll be back later on with uh, Kieran and Gav. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. A very good afternoon to you. You're welcome back to the Off The Ball Sunday newspaper review. Stephen Doyle here with Gavin Cooney from the 42.ie and Kieran Cunningham from the Irish Daily Star. And uh, just to keep you updated on the All-Ireland Women's Intermediate Final, it's at least three points 
Wexford one point after 15 minutes we will be going live to Croke Park for an update from Diana Hora in the next half an hour or so um, but we had lads touched on uh, the interview Dermot Crow did with the uh, Meath player Mary Kate Lynch and uh, just some really nice stuff in it here um, as you guys were saying it's uh, as Kieran you mentioned we don't get to learn too much about the personality of the, the male players these days but uh, just starting with the opening paragraph in this piece um, it says here before the interview begins there was a brief encounter with Mary Kate Lynch's mother Claire in the car park of the Meath Centre of Exent at Dungani near Trim the topic of conversation is her daughter's lower lip that needed repair after two of her front teeth scraped open a nasty wound with 40 seconds left in the All-Ireland semi-final against Donegal Lynch is explaining that it would take more than that to rule her daughter out of an All-Ireland final. Just uh, moving on then later in that piece, and uh, this does give us a, a good, uh, interesting insight into the life of Lynch. It says, Lynch is a restless spirit who finds it hard to sit still for very long, along with her only other sibling, her brother Jack, who is four years older. She's been active in traditional music and Shano singing. It's an old Irish, old style Irish dancing, very low to the ground, she explains, of Shano's. It's quite loose. It's not uh, like Irish dancing. You don't have to have your hands by your side. There is no certain dress code to it either. It is very relaxed, kind of freestyle dance. My mum played the concertina when she was younger and my mum and dad, Dad John, both sing. There was a lot of trad music on my dad's side as well. I did Irish dancing from first up to sixth class in primary school. Then I went to Shanos in secondary school. She will actually be competing against her brother in Shanos dancing in the All-Ireland Fla in Mullingar next weekend. It's, um, I think that's the homecoming for the Fla as well next weekend to Mullingar. That's going to be a big one. Um, but um, some nice insight there into the life of Mary Kate Lynch, the Mead footballer. Mm. She spent the, she, she was in COVID isolation ahead of the, la, the All-Ireland last year. Um, so she had 10 days inside. She was like preparing for an All-Ireland final in her back garden. And she's a psychology student as well, as Kieran was saying before the break there. Uh, and she was just reading psychology books throughout it all. Um, I was reading an awful lot about being underdogs, a step too far, whatever it was. I was training myself in the garden. I missed all the build-up last year, so this is really exciting this year. I like that. I like that as well, like that she's, um, you know, she's, okay, it's in a second All-Ireland, but she's embracing the build-up. I, I, think, I, think, that, I think that's a good thing, and it, uh, it just it reminds you of where football should be in the pecking order in life. Yeah, absolutely. Even her her decision to, to why um, she was going to do primary study primary school teaching, but she veered into educational psychology, and it came from watching the Rosa Tralee, and one of the contestants was talking about it that she, that's what she was uh, she the field she operated in it, and she liked the sound of it, so she went for it. So quite interesting. But like she, there's nothing uh, you know, it's not like it's remarkable or nothing remarkable startling in it, but it's just. A grand open interview about somebody who's playing in the you know the biggest game in her sports. Mm. And I'm sure and it won't given her in the build up and I doubt very much of fact <laughs> she's a reigning all star, you know, she might well be uh, you know, get to be one of the best players in the pitch today, be no surprise, but it just it does highlight uh, Mm. The kind of um, ludicrous paranoia that you get elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, moving on then, Nadine Doherty has a good piece there. Um, the Royals put their crown on the line. Meade's incredible journey began against Kerry and they can retain their title by beating the Kingdom. How many times have we heard about teams going to the well? It's a commonly used phrase these days by GAA managers, opens Nadine, describing their team's resilience and it's one that really grates on me. Credit to them. They just went to know, went to the well yet again. Or, I don't know how they do it, they just go back to the well every time. Hearing the words, the well, in a post-match interview sets me off with an overly dramatic eye roll and an urge 
to throw something at the television, I suppose. Women's sports um, not immune to some of the um, cliches that we hear rolled out in uh, pre- or post-match interviews. Yeah, yeah of course, yeah, yeah. Um, but just looking at the two teams today, I mentioned to Arthur in the uh, opening of the show, Styles make fights. And it really does promise to be, well... You know, it, it could be an interesting... I know last week they were talking about Galway Kerry. It could end up being a cagey affair mm. because of the styles of the way the two teams play. But we didn't get a cagey affair. No, we got a brilliant all. shootout by the two star players. <clears throat> and I know Eamon Murray, the Mead manager, has been talking today that we could maybe have something like that between Louise Nimura Hurtig on the Kerry side and then the likes of Vicky Wall and Emma Duggan on the Mead side. Could we get a shootout between those two or will it be a cagey affair? I, I don't know, but it does have... When you've got a, a, a team like me who really live off turnovers and, you know, the buzz that they get off that and counter-attacking teams against this Kerry team, they like to get forward, they like to attack. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah, and like to extend the use, I know if Nadine uh, Darty's listening here, I apologise for using the phrase, but it's interesting to me that because both of these respective teams, their wells are a lot less deep than the likes of Dublin and Cork. Like this was a Division 2 final just over a year ago, you know. Uh, Mead's rise has been absolutely amazing. But Kerry, like, I mean, what did they, they won nine in a row back uh, between 1982 and 1990. But they haven't won a title since 1993. So it's been, a, it's been a long road back. And I think it's the first final without either Dublin or Cork since, I think 02. it's 02. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. Do you, um, are you kind of happy that that Cork-Dublin stranglehold has been broken on the uh, All-Ireland Women's finals, Kieran. Well, I am, but uh, I, I, I'd be completely honest. I'm disappointed on the goal or in there because I thought, you know, once they beat, beat Dublin, they had a great chance and uh, they were in a strong position against Meath. But you know, it keeps coming up. You see the word resilience used about this Meath team a lot, and they just didn't panic and they were, the, they were so calm and composed when they needed to be, and they got the score. They worked the scores. Uh, very impressively mm. to get over the line at Donegal just weren't uh, good enough. The interesting enough, thing know. about that match, now I, I admit I didn't see it, but reading the previews and the build-up to this game is that Donegal were one of the teams that kind of mirrored Meade's approach to the game. They mirrored their tactics mm. and that perhaps was the reason why they got so close to actually beating them. So Yeah, perhaps, yeah. But uh, I think it was, you know, often sport comes down to decision-making and, and Meade just made better decisions on the... On the ball, and I think you know the they got the right shooters on the ball, and you know they just uh, they thought their way to victory, which Donegal didn't. You know, definitely mm. didn't. Yeah. Good piece by Katie Liston as well in the Independent. Just the headline of that one is "Excellence Knows No Borders." That sporting potential should never be stifled by geography or gender. And a picture there of Katie with the 1993 All Ireland winning Kerry team. Picture by Sam Barnes. A really good photo of that, and. Um, <laughs> this one stood out to me this part of the uh, column where it says sports coaching experts talk about talent identification and development and the hotbed effect how does Kerry manage to produce expressive Gaelic footballers what explains their success in men's and women's codes no scientist or coach can argue for genes at the expense of practice or vice versa especially not in the face of intricate patterns of living and loving across county lines questions I'm sure the rest of the country really would like to hear answers for and also in Kerry like how they play with expression with the almost oppressive pressure on them (laughs) I mean there's there's a line Tommy Conlon is writing in the Sunday about the men's about the men's All-Ireland win last weekend 
and Jack isn't worried anymore they're free men now you know it's just like <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean in Kerry it was almost as they didn't it's not a case of congratulating them for winning the All-Ireland it's well breathe a sigh of relief that we didn't lose another one but it's just uh, I don't know people you know you don't buy the jeans oh, thing do you no no definitely not or <laughs> DNA is another one I hate when people go on the DNA but uh, you know it comes down to dumb luck so much as well. Like David Clifford got in, was the best player in the pitch in the semi-final against Tyrone last year. Perhaps his best ever game for Kerry. And he got injured at the right at the end. He couldn't play an extra time. I, I'm convinced of, of David Clifford was in the, the field. Kerry would have beaten Tyrone and would have beaten Mayo in the final. So Peter Keane would have was All-Ireland. Jack O'Connor would never come in. This year, Jack comes in. He's getting praised for so many things and he did so many things right. But at the same time, if Conor Callan was fit... Would they have beaten Dublin? Mm. It's debatable. To, to be pulled, uh, and that's been kind. Like uh, You would think Conor Callan would have been worth five or six points between creating and scoring at least. And uh, So often it just comes down to you could, all the preparation in the world and having 22 men back, uh, people in your backroom team and stuff. Just one injury to one player can make all the difference. Kieran, there's sports psychologists all over the country now <laughs> going, dumb luck. What's he talking about? Yeah. We'll come to sports psychology yeah, in a moment. <laughs> Before we do, though, um, just uh, moving on from the Independent to the Irish Mail on Sunday, which also has some great coverage of the women's final upcoming at four o'clock. And um, as I mentioned, Shane McGrath writes some really good stuff on that. We'll come to Shane now in a moment. Uh, Philip Lanigan's piece in the build-up to Mead. Uh, against Kerry at four o'clock and uh, I just thought the opening to this was quite interesting he's got some great quotes in there from uh, some of the Mead set up which we know their their backroom team is breaking up after this game so that's going to be a big factor I think in today's decider Croke Park but the opening of Philip Lanigan's piece here in the Irish Mail on Sunday in terms of profile and promotion not to mention the skill set and conditioning of the players ladies football has never been in such a positive space and yet the impact of the expanded AFLW is such that the exodus of so many stars down under for the 2022 season raises questions as to whether it will ever get a chance to realise its full potential I just thought that was interesting because it is the dark shadow Hanging over yeah, see, the, 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 the big difference, like some people might realise this, compared to you know the likes of Conor Glass or Killian McDade, you know they've come back, but they went to Aussie rules. But um, the, the, they weren't going in the middle of the GA the summer, you know, in the middle of the GA Championship season, you know. The, because, but the the women's uh, Aussie rules now is overlapping with the, the women's championship here, so so the key players are leaving the sport. Uh, you know, at the business end, when the business end is happening, and so it's uh, and it's not like they're getting offered huge money, you know, but it's it's more it's it's a bit of money, but it's also a lifestyle thing, and it's uh, a lot of uh, Irish people in their twenties want to spend a year or two in Australia anyway. So if you can get paid to play a bit of sports, like it's very hard to turn it down. So. Yeah, 100%. I, I just think it's um, because we know there's a couple of the Mead players who will be departing after this. Um, I was looking through, I, I just put together a list because I, I knew I'd be speaking um, to Diane in the build-up to this game. But if you even look at the players that are there at the moment, and you can tell Mayo all about it because the amount of players they've lost down there. Aileen Gilroy from Mayo, Breed Stack from Cork, Anya Tig from Leitrim, Ailish Considine, Claire Ashley McCarthy, Tipperary, Grace and Neve Kelly from Mayo, Sinead Goldrick, Dublin, Lauren McGee, Dublin, Ashing Sheridan, Cavan, Sarah Rowe, Mayo, and Rachel Kearns, Mayo. You wonder if the Mayo women could have won mm. an All-Ireland title over the last couple of years with that kind of talent that they've lost to, to uh, teams down under. Yeah, no, it's... Um 
it's an exodus and it is a bit crippling but I mean it's hard to like it's so hard to you know begrudge any of the players mm. snaffling that opportunity um, I suppose it was it suited slightly uneasily when the calendars didn't overlap as, as Kieran pointed out but now that they do it's very hard to argue that the professional sport and the sunny lifestyle and the better life won't, uh, won't win out yeah, and I know there's been a lot of uh, talk about expenses for uh, the female players as well, which um, is something that does need to be addressed. Now, I did mention as well in today's Irish Mail on Sunday, it's uh, just an interesting piece, I thought, on um, sports psychology. And uh, the interview is with Neve Fitzpatrick, um, a well-known sports psychologist in uh, Gaelic games. The interview is done with uh, Shane McGrath. And uh, I suppose opens up with the influence of uh, Caroline Currid on the uh, Limerick Senior Hurlers um, success this year and over the last few years I should say um, just a couple of profiles in there as well on Tony Griffin who gets mentioned in the piece Gary Keegan and uh, David Ford of course who was uh, capped at uh, international level for the Republic of Ireland as a goalkeeper uh, David Ford from Galway um, the opening of this uh, interview uh, it says amid the flurry of thank yous sent skywards by captain's winning speech Declan Hannan made room for an extended tribute addressing, addressing Caroline Currid the team performance coach after this year's All-Ireland Final Limerick's leader summoned 10 words to do justice to one of the most successful partnerships in Gaelic games she's made us the men we are thank you Caroline said Hannan so uh, they go on to uh, talk about Currid working with Limerick through the to all four championship uh, successes um, a week after Hannan's words then Kerry captain Sean O'Shea credited the role of Tony Griffin for the uh, success of the Kerry senior footballers this year um, not only in the final but beating Dublin in the semi-final Jack O'Connor the Kerry senior football manager said he was especially effusive he had worked with Griffin and Kildare last year and was determined to bring him south on his resumption of the most intense role in football Kerry's nerve in that uh, semi-final comeback against Dublin credited to Griffin Um Okay, Stephen, if, if a couple of things of balls had fallen a little bit differently in that game, Galway would have won. Yeah. So we've been reading articles today about Bernard Dunn yeah. uh, having done for Galway what Tony Griffin has said to have done for Kerry. Mm. You know, I've never, I'm not questioning the impact that, you know, the performance coaches mm. uh, do have an impact in psychologism, but every team has them and they have somebody, generally have somebody of a high level, particularly the top teams. So... Do these things not even out? You know, does it mm. not suddenly? You know, at the end of the day, you know, still comes down to David Clifford does something remarkable that has nothing to do with Tony Griffin because it's something that's done all, all his life. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do. I totally take your point. Absolutely. Because I've I asked Dublin players over the years what Bernard Dunn does or yeah. did, and nobody's ever been able to explain. And I don't yeah. think it's that they were keeping it secret. It's kind of. Yeah. <laughs> no, he was very good, but mm. okay, what did he do? Yeah. I suppose it's just another, you know, weapon in the arsenal for uh, for sports people. Like mm. Roy McElroy worked with Bob Rotella and then went back to his swing coach who told him, Look, the best psychologist in the world is a flat club face on yeah. on at the at the end of your swing. Like I mean you have to you know, you have to do your job for uh, their job to uh to do a job on you. So yeah, I'm but not, I'm I always remember when, well, when, when Liverpool nearly won the league under Brendan Rogers uh, Steve Peters, who wrote The Chimp Paradox, <laughs> was doing interviews all over the place. And then suddenly when they fall short, there was not a word that <laughs> Steve Peters would. <laughs> but uh, no, this is, I'm not having a go in sports yeah. psychology, but like, it's just I, it's I because everybody has theory. to have these professional setups. And, yeah. you know, yeah. you have to have your good, uh, you know, your top class, S&C, sports psych, nutritionists, etc. Yeah. 
So I just wonder, is it even in there? Like there are, there do seem to be, like in any any field, like whether it's broadcasting, journalist, uh, football managers, footballers. You know, Carlin Curran's track record mm. would indicate she's at a tier above a couple of the others. You know, the, in any field, you know, there are people that are better. Gary Keegan's track record is exceptional, for example. So, mm. like David Ford, I don't know how he did in that role, but the most interesting guy I've ever met involved with the Ireland team yeah. is David Ford, without yeah. a doubt. Like really got a lot going on there so yeah, I can see why Stephen Kenny brought him in just to mention again I, I do know I take your point on the on, and I think even Neil Fitzpatrick who's uh, interviewed for this piece um, does uh, explain because we see that she was brought in by Wexford manager Liam Griffin in uh, the spring of 1996 by the mm. following September they'd won one of the most famous and most notionally popular all our nationally popular I should say all Ireland's in living memory memory um, goes on to say uh, she was actually involved in uh, or mentions the mystery around the preparation of Steve Collins for his famous world title bout with Chris Eubank in 95 mm. Collins claimed he was hypnotised for the fight an absurd outburst that nonetheless spooked Eubank it was pageantry but it, was also, it also gave a skewed sense of the role of mental preparation in sport uh, Wexford Griffin they go on to say then later said that he knew his players were serious about succeeding when they were amenable to working with a psychologist and when that psychologist was a woman he knew they were really serious that comment wasn't meant to denigrate his players or imply they held particular uh, particular prejudices Neve talks about um, how tough it was for her to go into that dressing room um, in 96 and um talks about uh, how they won that All-Ireland but then goes on to say that she was brought into the Mayo uh, senior footballer set up by Stephen Rochford and that it didn't work out for them in that particular year they lost the final uh, <coughs> in one of the great finals against Dublin uh, that September and um, she says here herself if you look at being an inter-county player the pressure expectation of a county and of supporters on their shoulders managers are just looking at that now and saying it really is one of the ingredients and I'm going to pay attention as a manager to the ingredients around fitness around coaching around skill development well then doesn't it make sense that I pay attention to to the emotional mental the cognitive world of my players yeah because it's interesting like the first two that I remember um, uh, sports psychologists making an impact inter-county level were Craig Mahoney with Terry footballers in 93 Mm. and Neve Fitzpatrick with Wexford Hurlers in 96 but what the Wexford and Derry had in co- common was uh, incredibly charismatic managers who were psychologists themselves, basically, in Liam Griffin and Eamon, and Eamon Coleman. Mm. So, you know, the, the work on the psychology, I, I would have thought, was a collective effort. Because definitely, if you've ever met Griffin, and, and Coleman was the same to an extent as well, but like Griffin is he's one of the most... Uh, uh, like, even if you've never picked up a hurley in your life, you know, you talk to Liam Griffin for 20 minutes and you want to get a stick in a ball and <laughs> yeah. bang it against the wall. Like, and, you know, some of the famous, uh, you know, the stories of that year when, you know, he stopped the bus at the Wexford border, you know, and talked to them about, you know, on their way to Crow Park and talked to them about 1798 and Vinegar Hill and everything else. And they walked across the county border and you go, you know, in, in some hands that would be, you know, mawkish or, you know, people would be rolling their eyes. But he was able to carry it because mm. of his... Like, you know, that's the case with a lot of the managers. Like, Alex Ferguson would be a master psychologist. Jurgen yeah. Klopp, you know. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure Guardiola, I think he's different, a uh, different kind of personality. But, but it, it always depends on your personality, doesn't it? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. like, before the 
Champions League final in Kiev in what 2018 Liverpool got there kind of surprisingly against Real Madrid and to break the tension beforehand Klopp wore one of Ronaldo's branded underpants like I mean and then flash into the <laughs> and like that works because you're Klopp like yeah. I mean I'm not sure yeah because it's, really it's amazing sure that how, yeah it's amazing how dependent things are in your personality because Klopp has done so many things and I start to think you know. If Solskjaer had done that at United, you'd be rolling your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> you know the thing. You know things. Like, uh, God, I can't even think of them offhand. But like uh, in terms of celebrations, etc. You know, it's he's it's, got a charisma clock. It's just Solskjaer that charisma, and like, that, yeah. that's the kind of magic about all this thing. Is like it's so hard to define. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot. There's, there is a kind of an embarrassing dad energy off Klopp, but for some reason he get, he's able to carry it. Yeah, yeah but it's natural. Like it's not forced. Not. Like yeah. some people, you could yeah. you know you could see they're you know they've thought. Of, like Rogers, like Rogers, even though he's a good, he is a good manager coach. You could see, you know, some of the things would be, you know, would be stunts that would be thought up in advance. And mm. what was your man that uh, lectured us the players on the pitch at halftime? Phil, oh, Phil Brown for whole Phil City. Brown, yes. Phil Brown, yeah, yeah, like he's a classic <laughs> example of. Uh, like that was something he drew up before yeah. and there will be a scenario I will do this and <laughs> well Brown is a rare instance of a man who believes he had charisma but doesn't yeah, yeah, you yeah. know and he yeah. acted like that but with regards to sports psychologists like it's it's often I mean the boring the boring reality is like a lot of success in sports in terms of team building or team preparation is, are just good meetings like I mean it's just yeah, a group yeah. of people in a room working well together without too much friction just constantly making the right decision but that's not the stuff that narratives hang off you know so we always there's always so much attributed to this and that you know you'll you'll see it's a classic like you know I like the athletic but it's a classic staple of their of their journalism mm. you know a new yeah. manager comes in you know ketchup it's either we have ketchup or we don't have ketchup and that's like yeah. that's that's the big act yeah, it's, from, it's, it's from the magic which all success, theory. like well, you, you always got this like um, when there used to be more access to all Ireland winners the week after was always somebody would you know a few people would have got dug deep into their year and so you know you would have found out about Joe Kerning smashing his loser's medal uh, mm. against the, the, the or loser's plaque against the dressing wall. And that's the reason they won. You know, that's put forward then. That inspired them for the second half. Or remember when Cork... Well, Jack O'Connor even said it last week, didn't yeah, he? He yeah. said at halftime, he thought the team looked lethargic. So he said, I'm not really one for shouting or whatever at halftime, but yeah. he felt he had to give them a rocket last weekend. Yeah, so. yeah. Look, and it's always been said, like Mickey Moore, who was Coleman's coach in 93... You know, he famously never really spoke in their dressing room, but he took over at halftime in that, uh, 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 and, and did a rousing speech of earning. He got the credit. Cork went to Barra Island in 2010 and did an army assault course, and they were talking about that months later that that mm. gave them the edge. And it's, it's you know, they're nice, uh, nice little stories. But, yeah. you know, as Neve everything, says in that piece, you know, everything the goes into the mix. Like, yeah. like there's a little piece there on Pat Spillane that Mick Foley writes in the Sunday Times. Yeah. And there's a little line about Adrian Spillane when he came on as a sub. He had 1964 mm. uh, either written on his wristband or something. And I, that was his grandfather, you know, Pat Spillane's yeah. father, who was a selector against Galway in 64 and died a couple of days after the game. Yeah. And, you know, th- th- those are little things. But like everybody uses little things for their own motivation. And everything comes together. Like, it's impossible to pinpoint the reason you won was this, you know, was like it could come down to a refereeing decision, it could come down to a million different things. But yeah. that's what, like that famous Anthony Daly line, uh, look at hurling a yeah. thousand mad things and someone comes out on top. <laughs> like you can't explain these things. Yeah. yeah, And it's just like there were so many tributes to Cody retiring and like I read them all and I listened to so much and he did a brilliant piece here with was it Michael Fennelly and, uh, and Eddie Brennan. I came away thinking I have no idea really what made Cody successful. Yeah. 
It was just, it seemed to be his personality and the standards that he drove. But there was never like a little like narrative hook which you could say mm. he did X and the team achieved yeah, well, Y. Well, Brian Cody managed to bring out an autobiography and you find <laughs> after you've read it, you know less about him than you did before you read it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, I mean, they, I think they might study Cody in like, you know, postmodern literature <laughs> courses in Trinity. It's just like, I mean, <laughs> how, do you, how do you write 300 pages and, and, and achieve uh, someone knowing less about you? But I mean, yeah. that's what the media, I mean, that's what media and storytellers do. Like we do these things and it's a great way of getting to know the story and enjoying it, etc. But I think sometimes it is at odds with the, the kind of the endless mundanity of success. It's just good practice, good people making good decisions over and over again. We'll have a look at some of the reviews from uh, last week's All Ireland final win for Kerry um, in that All Ireland final men's final, I should say. And uh, we'll also have a look at uh, some really interesting pieces on rugby and concussion, especially in the Sunday Times this afternoon. That's coming up next with myself, Stephen Doyle, Gavin from the Forty Two .ie, Gavin Cooney, and Karen Cunningham from the Irish Daily Star. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. It's a very good afternoon to you and you're welcome back to Off The Ball on this Sunday afternoon. Stephen Doyle here in studio for the afternoon and alongside me for the Sunday Paper Review for the uh, closing segment, Gavin Cooney from the 42.ie and the Irish Daily Sports Chief Sports Writer, Kieran Cunningham. Now, we're just going to move on to, um, I suppose, the last couple of weeks. There's been a lot in the news about rugby and rugby concussion and um, a couple of legal cases that will be taking place. Um, the Irish Times revealing this week that some former Irish rugby players um, are taking a case um, against the Irish Rugby Football Union over claims they suffered serious brain injuries during their playing careers. That was announced this week. Um, that case has been taken by a Dublin-based solicitor's firm, Maguire McLaffey LLP, or based in uh, Capel Street. And um, a spokesperson from that particular firm um, has said that there are Irish players involved in this and that um, it was similar although totally separate to the case in England in that um, very much so CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy um, is the issue there with these players that are taking the case. We know in the UK, as I said, that separate case being taken by Ryland's law firm in the UK and that they're representing 185 rugby union players aged in their 30s, 40s and 50s. And uh, these could be really landmark cases, um, but off the back of that, there are a couple of pieces in today's papers. Um, Bernard Jackman, whom we shall come to later on. But um, a piece by David Walsh in the Sunday Times, which really is, uh, it's, I don't know how you put it into words, it's devastating. Um, it's about Siobhan Cadigan, who was a back row player with the Scottish international team. And uh, the headline here, they fixed Siobhan's broken bones but turned their back on her broken brain. It was Siobhan Cadigan's dream to play rugby for Scotland. She died only three years after that dream came true. For the first time, her grief-stricken family and partner tell her story. Um, David Walsh, I have to say, lays the story out really well, I thought, from the intro. Um, gives us a sense of Siobhan, who she is, who she was, just to say, and her family and how important she was to her family. Um, it opens up with Siobhan Cadigan and Dan Taylor first meeting on Sunday morning at a coffee house in Stirling. Um, basically, both women uh, met on a dating site and uh, uh, came together. 
And um, it says here, chatting online, they found their interests had overlapped from sports to dogs to a shared love and loyalty for Fab Ice Lollies. Um, her partner, Anne Taylor, um, goes on to say um, that uh, Siobhan spoke passionately about rugby, the challenge, the togetherness, the perfect tackle, the clean break. Stirling University, Stirling County, she loved it all. She never mentioned that she was a Scotland international. That might have been perceived as boastful. Anne was mesmerised. Siobhan's bright blue eyes waltzed with enthusiasm. Um, they didn't want to speak to uh, Siobhan's brother Mark and uh, Mark says here when he thinks of his little sister Siobhan he remembers the little girl who was always going somewhere the one who always walked on the bright side they christened her Siobhan Elizabeth her mum called her Pumpkin the wider family called her Chucks her friends called her Shibby or Shib and Scotland called her full stop inevitably which I thought was a nice bit of writing by by David Walsh Um, we then go on to find out how she got into rugby, starting with the McLaren Minis at the age of six. Um, that was the local club in Callender where her dad, Neil, um, coached her and uh, brought her into the fold there. Um, Mark, her brother, then says, you would see the boys in the other team saying, ah, great, they've got a girl. And she just smashed them, sidestepped them, dominated them. Parents of the kids in the other team would say, I can't believe that. I've never seen anything like that. Everyone warmed to Siobhan. Um, it mentions uh, a period of bullying that she suffered when she was in school. She was bullied by some boys. She was a girl playing rugby and playing it very well. Insecurity suffered. If a girl played rugby as well as the boys played it, it followed that she must be a boy. The bullying lasted for a while. For a girl who loved the game, the small cruelties became a stress that she could not hide. Morvan, Siobhan's mother, spoke to someone at the school. Things got better. One time Mark had to intervene on Siobhan's behalf. After he'd spoken to the culprits, the bullying stopped they apologised, job done. Still, he was annoyed about it the next day when he realised that Siobhan had forgiven all her spotty persecutors. He goes on then to say, that was Siobhan, she just let it go. Next thing, she forgave the sinners, but their sin marked her. For a while, Siobhan and the game of rugby were lost to each other. So she spent a period away from the game then before she went to university and uh, her interest in rugby was revived. And then it goes on to tell us that she played Test Rugby for the first time in a Six Nations match against Wales. That was back in 2018 in Colwyn Bay in February 2018. Um, and it talks about how Neil uh, made the big trip, her dad made the big trip down to Colwyn Bay uh, from Callender, which was 40 miles north of Glasgow. And uh, he filled the tank, got the car service to make sure he made it all the way down. A really, really long trip. And says here, at the ground, Neil persuaded a policeman, this is, I should say, subsequently after speaking to uh, Siobhan and leading to her belief that he wasn't going to be there. He says, at the ground, Neil persuaded a policeman to allow him to park close to where the Scotland team coach would pull up. He laid a Scotland flag across the bonnet of the car and sat alongside us. When the bus rolled in, he scanned the windows. He knew which side of the bus Siobhan would be sitting on. She stepped off the bus with a smile that lit the night. She came straight to me. I got the biggest bear hug. Dad, you're here. Remember, I said, next job. Siobhan played the last 20 minutes or so that night. Wales squeaked at 18-17, having been 13-0 up at half time. He's then quoted saying, I'd seen her running out, singing the national anthem and then coming on the second half. That was all I needed, Neil says. She'd come so far from a kid tackling her brother in the back garden to being the only girl in the team through playing for a women's team when she didn't know when anyone 
she didn't know anyone to being bullied for being good at something to temporarily lose her confidence and drifting away from the game then coming back into it and just being who she was and now she recognized now she was recognized at the highest level there was no greater pride I stood and cried for where that kid had come from there was no privilege in her no favoritism no money no private education it was just will talent and determination to get there um we get a great insight into again how Siobhan was loved by her family and how much she loved her family um, it talks about uh, a cousin of hers called Chloe who died at a very young age just six weeks of age uh, from heart complications and how much fundraising Siobhan led her family on uh, £56,000 they raised for York Hill Hospital um, creating Chloe's sensory room again just giving us a real feel of the type of person Siobhan was a very selfless person very loving person um, then we go on a little bit we get a bit more of a feel about her relationship with her mother Morvan um, who tells us about a journal that she kept for Siobhan um, and that says or she mentioned in that there were there were so many many things I wished I had done differently I wish I could remember everything you said did all the wonderful achievements you gained there are so many I wish I'd lived in the moment and really savoured every little detail of your childhood but we were always in a rush I thought that was a, a lovely little piece there and especially when you kind of keep in mind what we are to learn later in the piece. We then learn about how Siobhan went on to study uh, criminology and sociology from the University of Stirling. She graduated and then went on to take a master's in sports psychology, um, saying that rugby went hand in hand with her studies. Um, She won trophies with the rugby team in college. Um, And then we get to into the next paragraph I suppose this is kind of where the story breaks in in half because up till now we've been getting a feel of the kind of person Siobhan was how she got into rugby um, her relationship with her family with her friends and with her partner Anne and then it says in early February 2020 Mark Callaghan received a message from his sister Siobhan Um, that day she'd been at Scotland training camp in Edinburgh preparing for the Six Nations that would begin a week later in Dublin she'd taken a bang on the head says okay Mark um, okay Mark said you're not driving I'll come and get you he texts his parents to let them know um, her mother Morvan texted Siobhan looking to see if she's alright she said I'm okay I'm not feeling right but I'm okay and Morvan says will I get a flight home um, at this time then her brother Mark is going out to Edinburgh to pick her up and on the drive back to Calendar Siobhan said she'd been told she was concussed but Mark could tell she wasn't up to talking much he was due to go back to see his girlfriend that evening but was so concerned he insisted that he stay on in calendar that night to keep an eye on her. She had been in touch with a friend of hers, Lucy Cran, says, Lucy Cran says, I remember her telling me that she'd got need in the head accidentally, obviously, says Lucy. She said she tried to carry on but suddenly couldn't control her emotions and started crying. Lucy would later tell Morvan that in messages that day, Siobhan said it felt like her brain had just been whacked against the inside of her skull. And she was Mac training the next day. Yes. Well, I say training. They put her on a stationary bike. Um, yeah. And that wasn't uh so that wasn't the first concussion that she suffered. Yeah. And that's that's Sorry, the that thing. was the first but wasn't the last. That was the I first, say. yeah. So we get um as you mentioned there, put on the, the the stationary bike. Not only that, you know, being told that she could go home and she was left to kind of her own devices then expect to come back to train the next day. She's put on a 
uh, a um, stationary bike and she's even saying at that stage um, the gym, the music in there was amplified times a million inside her head. She told her mum she'd felt nauseous with an incessant sore head and felt out of it. She drove the 100-mile round trip from Connor to Edinburgh to train every day until she flew with the team to Ireland. One week after a concussive blow to the head, she played against Ireland in Dublin. Hmm. Um, we then learned 14 months later on that uh, Siobhan started at number eight for Scotland in a Six Nations match against Wales at Scotston in Glasgow. 18 minutes into that match, Siobhan tackled a Wales flanker and though the tackle was well executed, the Scot took an accidental knee to the right side of her face and head. She didn't immediately rise to her feet after she went down. The game never stopped. At this stage, her family are searching frantically on television to see if they can find Siobhan on screen. They can't. And then eventually the camera does pan back and they can see her. Her brother Mark says she was still in the same position. She was in when the camera was on her first. She lay on the ground. Siobhan was being treated on the pitch by two members of Scotland's medical team. Her partner Anne then says, please get up, please move. She was relieved then when her girlfriend eventually rose to her knees. As the blow caused a nasty wound, Dr Raj McRae Routre strapped a bandage around her head to stem the blood flow and give some protection. Initially, Siobhan returned to her position, but after a minute or so, the referee told her she must leave the field for a head injury assessment, a HIA. Siobhan left in the 21st minute left the pitch and returned the 34th minute and played out the rest of the game. At this stage, as you, as you can imagine, our family are talking about the fear and about the worry that they are feeling. Um, Morvan says, I remember we were watching her. My sisters were in their houses and we were texting each other. I was in floods of tears. So were my sisters. We were saying, oh my God, what's wrong with her? Siobhan never goes down unless something is wrong. Um, so there's a bit more on that. Um, we get we get inside into the HIA um, yeah. So, I mean, the three questions asked of her were the stadium they were in, the Prime Minister of the UK, and the score of the game. Um, and then it's also alleged um, that Siobhan heard what was uh, what was said um, into the ear of the doctor. Um, uh, get her effing back on that pitch. Get her back on. Now, in fairness, the, the Scottish Union were asked about that, and they deny that. Those people are categoric that this phrase was not heard or said, and include the medic who treated Siobhan, coach Brian Eason himself categorically denies making this this alleged comment. Um, but, uh, mm. yeah, so it's, it's interesting to get that insight. We get um, a real sense that uh, she was in a bad way going on the pitch. I will read the SRU's response to the article in a moment. Um, we get then Morvan telling us after the Wales game that uh, they got really worried and gradually her brain functioning seems to be getting worse and worse. You know, people are people that she knows are meeting her. They're just seeing in her eyes, in her reaction to when they speak to her, that she's just not herself. Um, the family are then trying to get treatment through the NHS. At the same time, COVID, we're in the, the depths of the COVID pandemic. They can't get any uh, face-to-face uh, sessions with psychologists, with neurologists, anything like that. Um, and it's just it just feels like a desperate, frantic search by the family to try and find somebody who can help their daughter. Um, it seems the SRU, they're trying to get the Scottish Rugby Football Union, they're trying to get help from them. Uh, the help seems to be quite limited, um, the offers of it uh, from the family's perspective. Um, and then we come to, just on the fourth page of this 
really in-depth and brilliant piece by David Walsh. Um, it says, on November 26th last year, the day that Siobhan died, a voice message from Dr. Um, McRae, who is uh, Dr. Carrie McRae, the SRU's women's team doctor, that comes into the piece uh, about midway through, and was left on her phone. It was a suge- it suggested a Zoom call. Siobhan had stopped answering her phone weeks before. It got to the point where she could no longer live with the pain in her head, and Siobhan succumbed to an irrational thought and impulsive action. And... Um, it's just a really devastating piece from, from start to finish. Um, I should just read the SRU's response to the article by David Walsh. We asked the Scottish Rugby Union for comment on the issues raised here about their conduct and that of their employees. Some of them were answered directly in David Walsh's article. They also asked us to publish the following statement. Our condolences and thoughts continue to be with the Cadigan family and from the outset we offered Neil and Morvan our full support. We have tried throughout to respect the family's wishes in relation to the funeral arrangements and tributes as communicated at the time by them or on their behalf. We fully understand that this must continue to be a very difficult time for them the mental and physical welfare of all our players and people is central to Scottish rugby. We have excellent and dedicated colleagues throughout the organisation who are committed to delivering high standards of medical care and welfare support whenever it is needed. Scottish rugby has developed multiple ways in which mental health support can be provided and as accessed, including through independent third-party providers. However, due to medical confidentiality, we cannot provide details or comment on individuals. The rugby community in Scotland is close-knit. Many people in Scottish rugby and across the wider game were deeply saddened by Siobhan's passing and continue to be affected by it. Having known and spent time with her during her rugby career, we continue to make support available to them if required. And there is the end of the statement. And then we learn that Siobhan is um, her case is part of this uh, case that's been taken. Um, it says here, three months after Siobhan's passing, without having had any contact with the SRU, apart from a few matter-of-fact emails from the head of media, the Cadigans joined the lawsuit that alleges that the SRU and WR could have done more to prevent the brain damage suffered by so many players. Um, it, I, I, I felt my stomach turned as I read a lot of this, Karen. I don't know if you felt the same kind of... yeah. Yeah, like when I looked through the papers this morning, uh, one of the things I was thinking was if I wasn't doing this slot today, there was very little I would have read. You know, that overall there wasn't a huge amount, but this is one of the strongest pieces you'll read this year or any year. And um, like some people might remember when Siobhan Cadigan passed away, like there was no cause of death given. Like I said, it was tragically. And this is the first time it's been confirmed that she took her own life. And, you know, and this builds up the story uh of her last couple of years to to how she ended up in the situation she was in you know there's you know there's very grim stuff like anybody who's, who's dealt with uh, any relatives with dementia will there's t- you know there's pieces of stuff in here but her eyes looked like milky water and no the eyes were dead and you often see that was people with dementia you know that basically the spark has gone out of their eyes mm-hmm. and the spark has gone out of their life and Scottish rugby has actually a good reputation generally for dealing with brain injuries compared to some of the other unions, but it doesn't come out of this well. I know they're fighting their own corner and they've issued statements and they've uh, refuted some of the stuff in this, but there's little bits and pieces, like one of the pl- Scottish players, a teammate of Siobhan's, mentioning in a message the players were told not to contact the family directly. You know, the Ireland players... Uh, uh, scented number eight shirt in, in Siobhan's memory 
um, they, they presented it to Scotland during the Six Nations game and it was never passed on to the family and the family were never told about it. And things like that are just baffling. You know, you wonder what's going on. And the family, you know, as well, there's a couple of questions they bring up. If this had happened to Stuart Hogg, you know, with an appointment with a psychiatrist to be made, if Finn Russell's mother had pleaded with the SRU to get their son into the Spire, which is a private hospital in Edinburgh, they wanted Siobhan to go to and they were turned down. But, he, uh, the, you know, the family think if that was one of the, the main players on the men's team, it probably would have happened. You know, and our father, think, what our father, uh, the last couple of lines in this piece from our father are just so yeah. powerful. You know, yeah. I was the one who brought rugby into this family. And the reason why she started playing was because she was with me. Rugby gave her the happiest days and memories. And ultimately, rugby is why she's not here. And it's one of the starkest pieces you'll read about the dangers of rugby. You know, and you know, Bernard Jackman goes into it in his piece on Sunday Indo, yeah. talking about his last season with Leinster having twenty five concussions. Like he went into that in his autobiography, Blue Blood as well. But mm. no, he talks about the pain he was in and the migraines, you know, and the impact, you know, scrum training would have him on him and you know, it's said so often, but this generation, you know, or the, you know, the first couple of generation professional players are guinea pigs and you don't know what's coming down the tracks. Mm. And it's, very, you know, when you see the, you know, like if you read the Ryan Jones interview, there was, uh, I think it was in The Guardian last week. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, it was such a young guy and uh, what he's got, you know, he's, he's dementia at 40, I think he's 41, you know, you just... The sport isn't a bad place with this, you know. Nobody yeah. can can pretend otherwise. And no, this, I, sorry, Karen, this yeah, piece is on. horrifying just because what it what it does in a way that I haven't. I've read a lot of, I read that Ryan Jones piece, and they're horrifying in their own way. What's particularly horrifying about this is how well David Walsh evokes what it's like to to look at a loved one go through this. Like there's a kind of there's almost a kind of an incomprehension when they remember her and, and the changes that they saw in her. It, like it's, it, they just repeat this phrase, uh, some, she was crumbling before our eyes and something catastrophic had happened in her brain. But they knew. But there was almost... How did no one else know? I mean, okay, there's big questions to be asked with the Scottish Rugby Union here as well. But like the NHS, they couldn't get a face-to-face consultation through the NHS either. So there's, like, there's, a, there's a chain of people there and of organisations from whom uh, this family expected and needed better um, and now they're left asking questions um, and they'll ask their questions after they suffer just the most incom- incomprehensible grief it's uh, I would echo what Kieran said is one of the most powerful pieces of, sp- of sports running I've ever read and your heart would go out to to the family yeah it's it's. I think it's it's handled really well by David Walsh obviously the case is to come uh, time is a, a bit against us this afternoon gents um, I would like to spend a bit more time on this but what do you think is like this rugby thing is going to play out for a couple of years. I think, Karen, this is this is something that's going to be. This is not going to be a quick fix. And no, well, I think it's going to cost national federations a huge amount of money. Yeah, you know, I think, and we already know they're in they're in a bad way money wise. Yeah, yeah, and and world rugby, you know, I think they will have, you know, for what we've seen with the NFL, you know, they will have to. Uh, I would think there's a very good chance they will have to pay out and pay out big. And. And there's and a delusion. I, I, I don't know how you make it safer. You, you know, I don't because you can't. You can do all the weights in the world and all the gym work in the world, but you can't build up your head. Yeah. You know, you can't give your brain any more protection mm. unless you're wearing, uh, you know, so, 
you know, even like American footballers wear helmets and it doesn't protect them. So yeah. I don't know what you can do with the, you know. There's a level you know, you of... You have to change the tackle law. You have to change so many things to protect them. There's a slight level of mitigation, I suppose, World Rugby are trying to do with the, you know, red cards for high hits. Mm. But there's a level of delusion out there. Now we're seeing in the Southern Hemisphere that a red card be 20 minutes in the bin. Get serious, like. Yeah. I mean, they're talking about the games being ruined, the sports being ruined. Yeah, and people watching uh, and some in the media are guilty of this, that, uh, you know, the, the amount of red cards, you know, straight away people say, it shouldn't be a red or, you know, the game's gone soft. You know, you not think, enough Look red at cards. What, you know, you could have taken somebody's head off or you don't know what damage yeah. could be done long term. Mm. And it's... Uh, yeah, and we've even seen soccer in, in the FA. Yeah, like all these cases now. are coming. Like, because yeah. I see, you know, Dave Henders in the former League of Ireland goalkeeper, he puts up a lot of these pieces from different sports because yeah. obviously a lot, he knows a lot of people in his generation that are I would think ever having issues from heading the ball because a lot of them are joining will end up joining class suits I think over this Gentlemen I wish you could have longer I thought I was a bit worried we wouldn't have space there enough uh, pieces to put in there but it's um, it's been really enjoyable speaking to you both this afternoon Gavin Cooney from the 42.ie Kieran Cunningham Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star thank you very much do check out the papers this morning folks uh, and especially that Sunday Times piece as Gavin said one of the most powerful pieces of sports writing you will read it's uh, there's 12 minutes left of Crow Park in that intermediate final between Leash and Wexford it's Leash 112 Wexford 9 points we will be hearing from our uh, correspondents at Crow Park and we'll be building up to the Premier League as well later on this afternoon do stay with us coming up next we will be getting more preview to the All-Ireland Senior Football final between Meath and Kerry